Um, if you have a Bible, uh, grab it. I hope you do. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 24 through uh, 34. And it is, I just want to say, it's, it's wonderful to be back with you. I was only gone last week, and for those of you who weren't here, you're going, he was gone. <laughs> but uh, I was gone. I was in Chicago at a conference on biblical theology, and uh, just a wonderful experience. Uh, and even more than um, just the conference, the, the good conversations uh, with other pastors and other uh, congregations got to visit uh, another church. Um, called Redeemer on Sunday morning. So that was, that was quite fun getting to connect with them. So good conference, great, great conversations, a few good cigars, um, and it was good. But that being said, I am glad to be back. I'm glad to be here uh, and be with you. And so this morning, as we continue uh, our time in chapter nine, we're examining the conversation around the story of the man born blind. And uh, last week, Jaron preached on verses 13 through 23, and I so appreciated his uh, work on that text, his sermon, because he really showed us that Jesus truly makes the blind to see. And not just the physically blind, as we saw with uh, the man born blind, but also it's Jesus who makes us spiritually see. And yet, even in that, as we will learn today, those who reject him pervert his work in unbelief. Those who reject Jesus pervert his work in unbelief. I mean, we have seen this time and time again with the religious leaders. that They are rejecting Jesus and making a mockery of his name. And they're really making claims and accusations that are untrue. And so even in our text today, we are going to see just how strong the hatred for him is. But still, even in the midst of how others treat him and how others view Jesus, really we must not fear man, but confess that Jesus is Christ. This, in fact, was Jaron's wonderful final point. And really in this, there's a comparison that we see in the text, and, and one that's really constant in John's gospel, that there are those rejecting Jesus and those confessing Jesus. And so we are truly reminded here of the overwhelming spiritual blindness of man, the stark rebelliousness of his own heart. In fact, we were really shown this last week in verse 23, where John writes, they, the parents of the blind man, feared the Jews, the Jewish leaders. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so do you see what's happening in that verse as we get to our text today? It's that the Pharisees are demanding reverence. They're demanding glory for themselves ultimately. That it's, it's follow us, not Jesus. And really what drives all of that and is going to be an overarching, uh, really a feeling, almost a topic in the text is fear. That what drives that is fear. And so our text is almost a, a fear-based trial of the man before them, where they challenge the healing and the healer, Jesus. And so this morning, as we go to the text, what we're going to examine and, and seek to apply is that Jesus' work points to God's glory, but those blind reject his work because they do not believe. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill in the blanks of our text as we go to read John chapter 9, starting in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, Why, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, as we come before you, God, would you teach us to uh, take off our own uh, lenses? Would you take us, or would you teach us to take uh, all that we are and really lay it before you? God, I pray that we would see Christ in the text this morning. And not just because of what we physically see with our, with our eyes of what's before us, but God, may we behold Christ in the text. God, I pray that our eyes would be opened. That God, we would cling to Christ and to Christ alone. And so God, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to gather together and to examine your word. So God, would you use it to, to grow us, to teach us, and to make us more and more like Jesus. And so it's in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we just read that text, uh, one of the things I really notice is that it, it really does feel like a trial as they bring the man back to examine this again. And, and interestingly enough, it's Jesus they're more after accusing, but he is not around at this time. And so they accuse and they confront the man who Jesus had, has made see. And so really what we're getting is a, is a front row seat in the courtroom. And interestingly enough, this week I, I had the opportunity to sit in the Skagit County courtroom and watch uh, some trials happen. And understand, not for me, uh, but I was there to support a friend. And before my friend's case, there were a few other cases, and one of which where there was an attorney, and honestly, he wasn't a very good one. Uh, in fact, he was arguing for the innocence of a trespassing case, and he was failing. It was very clear this man was guilty. And in fact, all of us saw how poor of a job that he was doing to point the finger and really get the, the case excused. And at one point, the judge stopped and looked at him and said, well, maybe you should do some study so that you can see and understand what's laid out before you and what is already the case in the verdict. Needless to say, it was very awkward. A little bit ouch for that, for that guy. 
But really what that exposed is he was blind. He was so focused on winning the case that he couldn't really see what was true. Now, I tell you that because it really made me think of our text this morning with the religious leaders, that they are blind and they do not see the truth. Now, to understand the blindness and what we're going to find in the text, we have to remember one of the things I brought up a few weeks ago, which is we're examining two types of blindness. That there is physical blindness that the man has been healed of, but then there is also spiritual blindness. And that is important for us to think about in this text because that is ultimately what leads these religious leaders to such rejection and hate of Jesus. Ultimately, it is a type of blindness that causes them to overlook and even completely ignore what is true. And so just like the attorney that I saw last week, they're not very good at this. And as we read in verse 24, we're coming back to interrogation. The Jewish leaders, they aren't done questioning the man. And what we find is that they are trying to get him to change his position. They're trying to get him to change the way he views Jesus. And just as we read in verse 24, it says, For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now their instruction is really a form of urge and request to tell the truth. Basically telling him, remember, you're in God's presence, so speak as unto him. And this is literally the idea of the blind man getting up in a courtroom and being asked, do you swear to tell the whole truth? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? See, court is in session here. And they're still after the man confessing some sin and even disassociating with Jesus because they believe he's a sinner. That's why they instruct him to give glory to God. And even we find this type of language that they're using in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7. In verse 19 through 20, we find this exchange where Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. In verse 20, it says, And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And so then fast forward to our text. And in these verses, it is essentially the Pharisees saying, Give God thanks. Give him praise before he pours out his wrath. So the idea is repent, give focus to God, look to God before he disciplines you and before he punishes you, even for your association with Jesus. And so they say this, of course, because they see that this man is claiming that he's healed by Jesus. And so do you see what they're adding in verse 24? They told the man, we know that this man, we know that Jesus is a sinner. Now, that is a strong language. We know. I mean, they're basically saying, if you swear to tell the whole truth, then reject Jesus because he's a sinner. And this means to them that God isn't getting the glory. Jesus is. And so their their understanding and their knowledge of Jesus 
is very wrong. I mean, they do not understand that the work of Jesus points to the glory of God. And really, they see this as a contradiction in the healing. But today, we understand those to go together quite beautifully. Because for those in Christ, this is not a theological mystery. This is not a theological contradiction. In fact, this is exactly what John told us in the opening of his gospel letter. In verse 14 of chapter 1, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John says, we have seen, but this is what the religious leaders aren't seeing. So do you see the contrast there? But really, church, praise God that we have seen, that we see the work of Jesus and that it points to the glory of God. And why? Because we have come to know this as believers by faith. And so I don't know about you, but for me, definitely, when we sing the words of amazing grace, I am humbled. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. See, friends, when your eyes are opened, you see things entirely different. In fact, it's because you've come to know the truth and it has set you free. In fact, this is what we learned from Jesus in chapter eight. And so this is even how the man continues to respond in verse 25. He says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Here's what I love about that response. It's simple. I mean, really for him, he's saying, here's what I don't know. And honestly, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. What matters is though I was blind, now I see. I love that. You can ask me whatever you want, interrogate me however you would like, but I won't tell you about what I don't know. I stand on what I know and who I know. And that's a beautiful thing. But still, one thing is true about those who are spiritually blind. It's that they try to twist what is true and greatly contradict you. I mean, this is what we find in their response to the man telling them what he knows. In verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And then in the first half of verse 27, it says he answered them. I told you already. And you would not listen. See, they were not satisfied with his answer, which we had seen earlier in verse 15, when the man said, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. I mean, this man does not fully understand the person of Christ yet, but he is unashamed to say that it was Jesus who healed him and that it was a miracle. I mean, this, of course, is what is causing such great conflict and this whole interrogation because they are rejecting Jesus's deity and they take issue because they think Jesus is trying to take the place of God. That's in their thinking. But Jesus is not a replacement. He is God revealed. And that's what they don't see. 
This is what they're blind to. Ultimately, they are blind to the work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That they cannot see that Jesus' work points to the glory of God. And really, because of this, because of their own spiritual blindness, they're rejecting the man and they're rejecting the work of Jesus. And so in the second half of verse 27, we see the man ask them why they want to repeat his story. He says, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, as you can gather, this was very clever on the man's part to to word it this way and to ask this question. But he was not being rude or offensive. We should not read it that way. But they absolutely find his question offensive. And in this, the reason is because he exposes their motivation. They don't want to draw near to Jesus. They want to contradict Jesus. And so they respond very strongly and with much disagreement to the man's question. In verse 28, it tells us, and they reviled him. Now, before we go on to read the rest of verse 28... I want you to understand how strong this is because that word reviled in the Greek means to verbally abuse someone. And so there is very intense hatred here for him. And so verbally abusing and attacking him, they say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we know, we do not know where he comes from. Now, do you see the enraged comparison they make? I mean, it's almost actually childish in the midst of them losing the argument. It's almost as if they're saying, we know you are, but what are we? I mean, really, this is the way in which they're communicating and the conversation grows in intensity and in conflict. And of course, this is probably where some of you non-confrontational types would want to tap out, not lean in. Because this is no longer a conversation. This is, a, this is no longer a back and forth about the facts or what is true. This is a hostile debate. But also it's interesting what they said in verse 29. Because they just made it clear to the man, we don't know Jesus. Now, their lack of knowledge it is not a geo, geographical reference It's a reference to the prophetical office. They do not know this about Jesus. But really, this is the comparison that we should really grasp in verse 29, where they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And so really what they're saying is, Moses we get. We're we're followers of Moses, In fact, in verse 27, they said, we're his disciples. And they have that down. They they have the the Torah. They have studied what Moses wrote wrote in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But really the question that's being presented to them that we need to consider is, where does that come from? Who precedes Moses? See, Jesus has addressed this issue with the Pharisees. And so this isn't a new issue in the Gospel of John. I mean, remember, they have had multiple dealings with Jesus and they are actively rejecting him. 
In fact, back in John chapter 5, when Jesus performed one of his first miracles, he told the Pharisees in an argument with them, in, in verse 39 and 40 of John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, did you catch that? Did you see that? Their problem is that they search, but they don't see. They search, but they don't see. And church, this is something we must be careful of in our study of scripture. Because it's very easy to read ourselves into the text, to to really take on our own interpretations and and lens of thinking in scripture, and even sometimes uh, gloss over and not realize the context. And let me tell you, I have even learned that this morning. There's a section in this text we're going to look at in a moment where even, we, even I had missed a quotation and said it as the Pharisees said it, and really it was the man that said it. And one of the elders pointed out to me, hey, there's a quotation here, bro. This is, this is the section, and, and he's saying this. And I went into the office and prayed and said, Lord, help me to, to, to rework this that I might say it correctly. And so with humility, we must come to the text. Always in humility, coming to the word. We really, church, need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us that we might see Christ in all of scripture. See, this is what the Pharisees are missing, that the point of scripture, the whole canon of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is Jesus That's what we read about in Jesus's words in John 5, 39, when he says, it is they that bear witness about me. That is the grand narrative of the Bible. And so if you want to know what what lens should you be reading scripture and studying scripture through, let me tell you, it must be Jesus Christ alone because it is they that bear witness about him. And if we aren't looking at scripture through the lens of Christ, we're gonna pick and choose whatever lens we want and it won't point us to the truth. I mean, this is why the Pharisees are not seeing what the truth of scripture reveals about Jesus. They are missing the point from the whole Old Testament that it's pointing forward to Jesus. They're not seeing because they're spiritually blind. They're not beholding Christ in the text because they're rejecting Jesus as the Christ. And so they search the scriptures and they examine them and it's through the wrong lens. And so in that, their their hatred is causing rejection and their stubbornness is causing this continued blindness. That in fact, their blindness is so great that they don't even understand the progression of clarity about who Jesus is that's revealed in the text. I don't know if you noticed that in regards to this story, but as it moves through in John chapter nine, Jesus is identified with increasingly precise clarity. That in verse 10, he is called Jesus, his earthly human name. And then he is called a prophet in verse 17. And then in verse 22, he's called the Christ. And finally, he will be declared in verse 33 to be from God, which we will see. 
And so it's easy in that, in looking at the overview and acknowledging that we must see through the lens of Christ, it is easy to see the overview of the Christological progression of each name in this story as it develops. That it's from a, a, a mere man named Jesus to a prophet and Messiah who must be interpreted as bearing the authority of God because he is of God and he is God. And see, while the Pharisees refuse to accept Jesus and his role, the discussion actually drives home the true identity of Jesus despite their denials. That Jesus is the Christ who bears witness to the Father. Now, I think the question that that often as we study and we see the blindness of the Pharisees, I would imagine some of us are asking, how do you miss that? How do you, how do you read the, the Old Testament and how do you read the New Testament and how do you miss, miss Christ in the text? Well, really, it's by being spiritually blind. It is by simply and actively ignoring and rejecting what is true about Jesus. I mean, look at the man's response in verse 30. He points out their blindness. And he says, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. So here he is giving them testimony that Jesus has healed him and his eyes are opened. And really, I don't believe this is just an explanation of his physical opening of the eyes. I really believe this is a, is a measure of faith that is growing in the man but they don't believe. They want to get at what they know and they want to discredit the man and even Jesus because what is the greatest comparison in this text? Fear versus faith. That is ultimately the great comparison where the Pharisees are constantly answering, here is what we know and then here is what the Torah tells us. Do you see that order of their thinking? Here's what we know, and then here is what we see. And the man has come back continually saying, this is what is true about Jesus. This is what is incredible about Jesus. And I don't fully know him yet, but he made me see. And even we find that later the man does believe. But the Pharisees continue in disbelief. They argue and they reject. Even as the man continues to make his point, in verse 31, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. See, they do not understand that Jesus is perfectly doing the will of God. They do not understand the work of God in this man's life. I mean, they think it is sin and that God will not listen to him. God will not listen to Jesus and God will not listen to the man. And the reason for that is because in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 28, verse 9, one of the things that this references, verse 31, is in Proverbs 28, 9, where it says, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And so really there's an assumption on the Pharisees' part that they're viewing this man and Jesus as lawbreakers. That's in fact why they called Jesus a sinner in verse 24. And so because they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah who has come to fulfill the law, 
They reject that this is anything other than sin. And in that, it's not repent and believe in Jesus. It's follow us and listen to what we say. I mean, really, church, this is the difference between a shepherd and a Pharisee. Even today, that a Pharisee will point you to what they know and why you should do what they say. Whereas a shepherd will point you to who they know and why you should do what Jesus says in the word. And so here is fear again, that they are thinking what the disciples assumed back in verse two, when they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, back in verse two, verses one and two, when this interchange is happening, I really do wonder if the man heard the conversation earlier as the disciples are asking Jesus and he answers. And I think it is very likely as we meet the man in verse one, as Jesus passes by him, and then in verse two, the question of sin and suffering comes up with the disciples. And so think of the man hearing these words from Jesus. And really, I make this observation of him hearing Jesus's words because the Pharisees don't seem to face the man. And why? I believe it's because he remembered Jesus's words in verse three, when Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so listen, we know from Jesus's mouth, this is not a sin issue. This is what the man, in fact, has made clear from verse 31. But they're not listening. I mean, yes, sin is sometimes connected to our suffering, as we learned a few weeks back. But with this man, it is not because of sin, but because of sovereignty that this man was blind and now sees. But still, if they can't get him to listen, they've lost And so their motivation is, if we can get him to listen and believe what we know, then he'll do what we say. And really, this is the constant issue that we find with the Pharisees, that this is their theology based on personal interpretation and unbelief in Jesus. But he says here in verse 32 and 33, the man says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, do you see what the man is saying there? The man born blind has just clarified that Jesus is from God because he can heal. Because if not, he could do nothing. But again, they don't accept that. In fact, they're they're saying again and again to him, what you're claiming is false. God doesn't work that way. We reject Jesus as Messiah. And in that, they are missing the point. They're missing what we have seen all throughout the gospel of John, that it was never about the sign being significant, but what the sign pointed to. See, that's the point the man born blind is beautifully making. And church, this conversation should really lead us to a very genuine heart check. That before we assume or even hold so tightly to our own traditions of how we then go to the scriptures and view them, might we find great value 
and truth in always listening to Jesus and looking to Jesus? Because again, as Jesus told us earlier in John 5, verse 39, it is they that bear witness about him. And so this is the point where the Pharisees are turning on the man. They are continuing in disbelief. No matter what he says, they are not convinced. And this whole conversation has continued to just be aggressive and abusive. But really to this point, they cannot convince him. They cannot convince him because he is convinced about the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And really, I would even say among the the many applications and observations in the text, there is a great lesson for us here in the unwavering focus and the unwavering trust of the man in Jesus rather than what the Pharisees are saying. And that is that anyone who tries to force a doctrine upon you this way like the Pharisees are doing is not a servant of Christ. They're a serpent of Satan. I mean, understand, it is great faith that leads to correct and sound doctrine, not great fear. It is great faith. But see, at this point in the debate, in the trial, they are not getting anywhere with the man. They're not getting anywhere because he is believing what Jesus has done and he is coming to know who Jesus really is. And so in verse 34, we see they show their truest colors and truest hearts. It says they answered him, you were born in utter sin and, you, and would you teach us? It says, and they cast him out. Now, ironically, the interrogation is closing with a desperate accusation of the man where they basically say to him, you were steeped in sin from, at birth. How dare you? How dare you lecture us? This is really their last chance because these religious leaders, they despised the common people and even this man in particular. And they were especially angry as we examine the text because ultimately he was right and they were wrong. They cannot get past their unbelief. They are rejecting Jesus and they don't want anything to do with this man or with Jesus. And so they claim that his sickness is sin and his healing is in vain. But see, again, it's incredibly interesting because it's their own spiritual blindness and sin that causes them to reject in unbelief. And in this, they are utterly foolish because they're rejecting the very Savior they need. And really, because of their pride and their blindness, as we saw in this last verse, they cast him out. And see, what's actually quite funny to me about their actions and their choice to cast them out is that it beautifully brings about the planned purposes of God. See, the excommunication of the blind man, difficult as it must have been, turned out to be a good thing. It turned out to be a good thing because he would shortly be face to face with Jesus. And so just like with the man born blind who now sees Understand, you may be mocked and accused. You may be rejected or cast out, but having your eyes opened and knowing Christ sets you free. 
Because it's not about looking to yourself. It's not about holding on to what you know, but who you know. It's about looking to Jesus by faith who bore all of the same things and more for our sake. And so understand, this was not a light matter for this man. I mean, we might look at it and think, okay, he got thrown out of church. Go to another church. I mean, wrong. This is the temple. And the casting out of, uh, for this man meant his excommunication from the religious rites that he had in the temple and in the synagogue. And so all because he disagreed and looked to Christ, the religious leaders treated him terribly. They treated him terribly. They abused him in that they reviled him. They insulted him by claiming he was sinning. And they rejected him by casting him out. And so as we see the man and all that he's walking through, friends, never forget that Jesus was made all of these things and more for those who believe in him. That Jesus was abused for us. He was reviled. That Jesus was insulted for us. In fact, he became sin who knew no sin. And that Jesus was rejected for us that they cast him out and hung him on a tree where the father poured out his wrath upon him for your sin and for mine. And so understand, as the man goes away, he goes away richer than any Pharisee in the text. Why? Because his eyes are opened and he sees more than just what is in front of him. I mean, as we find in him going out in verse 35, he goes to be face to face with Jesus. And so this morning, as we come to a close, I wanna ask you, what is the source of your sight? See, the way to truly see, and I mean spiritually see in this life, is to know that each and every one of us was born blind. And you may say, what, I, I've got my eyes. You're the one wearing glasses. I got 20-20 vision. I got this down. I have great vision. But understand, again, I mean spiritually blind. See, what the Bible reveals is the guilty ones are the ones going throughout life sure of how smart they are, how capable they are, how strong they are, how intelligent they are, and how much they see. Really, their, their outlook and their thinking is just give me the facts. Just give me the science. Just give me this and that and all of this I see. And Jesus says, those are the guilty ones. This is what we'll find in the rest of the text of John chapter 9. But Jesus also tells us the ones who are saved are the ones like the blind man. Because the blind man knew he was blind. Every day of his life before meeting Jesus, there's this acknowledgement for the man. I'm blind. I am so blind. And I need a miracle if I'm ever going to see. And so understand, friends, this is true of all of us before Christ. And only when we know how blind we are does God come and give us the sight that we never knew we needed. And so do you know the source of your sight? See, for the Christian, let me encourage you and give you some assurance. We know that it is Christ and Christ alone. 
I mean, could you imagine how audacious it would be for a patient to sit at a table and do their own eye exam? Say, I'm blind and there's a surgery and I'm going to do it myself. We, we don't claim anything to our sight spiritually. We praise God that he has done it all. And so for the Christian, there is great hope because there is sight in Christ. See, this is why when we sing the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less, we sing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so this morning, it's about looking to Christ. It's about the work that he does. And when we examine this and say, what is the source of our sight? We would answer the man, like the man, and say, it is Christ, for he has given me sight. And so what is the source of your sight? Let's pray.